Good morning, good evening, good anytime around the world. Um, welcome to our talk series of Ibn Arabi Society uh, United States. My name is Denise Mater. I am a board member and secretary of the uh, Ibn Arabi Society in USA. I'm very happy to uh, welcome you to our first of the talk series. I have uh, Martin and Lucy, our friends from UK, helping to run this session for us. And very, we're very excited to get started. I want to turn it over to Maren, uh, our president, to say a few words and introduction. And after that, we're just going to um, uh, turn it over to Dom and Hina to get it started. I'm Maren Gleason, and uh, we're based in the San Francisco Bay Area as the Arabic Society in the United States. We have done symposia live. So this is our first time doing a series of talks on Zoom. And I'm so glad so many people have been able to join us from all over the world. This is really a wonderful thing that who would have guessed we'd be able to meet like this. So thank you all for coming. And I hope you enjoy the talks. And Dom, why don't you go ahead? All right, thank you, Marin, very much. And welcome everyone to uh, the US Muhyiddin ibn Arabi Society seminar series uh, titled, entitled uh, Al-Mizan, Justice and Harmony in the Works of Ibn al-Arabi and the Akbari Tradition. So the past few years have witnessed an upsurge in the awareness of injustices around the world, from Black Lives Matter protests here in the US to around the world, to Roads Must Fall in the UK, to growing awareness and outrage about tragedies uh, afflicting those in Kashmir, Myanmar, Xinjiang, Nigeria, Palestine, and elsewhere, in addition to the broader uh, abuses upsetting the balance of the natural environment. We now seem to be in a time of protests for justice. And in the face of such injustices and calls for justice, we thought we should uh, avail ourselves of the timeless wisdom and insights of Ibn al-Arabi on justice and harmony symbolized in the Quranic term al-Nizam, the balance, uh, because the timeless is always timely. So this seminar series will consist of three talks. We have a wonderful talk today and then over the next two Saturdays, followed by a symposium discussion with all three speakers. So I will now introduce our first speaker. Our first speaker for today, we're very uh, fortunate to have her, Hina Khalid who's a first year PhD student at the University of Cambridge. She's working on a fascinating comparative study of the theology and poetry of Muhammad Iqbal and Rabindranath Tagore. She's very interested in the possibilities of comparative theology across Islamic and Indic traditions and the ways that these shared devotional idioms have formed in and across the Indian subcontinent. She's also the winner of the 2019 Young Writer Award for a brilliant and really beautiful essay, a comparative exploration of the motif of negation as a process of spiritual attunement with specific reference to the concept of shunyata in Mahayana Buddhism and fana in Sufism. So we're very lucky to hear from her today. I know we'll get a little bit of a taste of uh, her prize-winning essay. So we'll, Hina will speak to us for about 40 minutes and then we'll have an open Q&A session, uh, which will be moderated. And I very much look forward to your talk, Hina. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for coming and sharing this space and time with us. Take it away. Bismillah. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Darwin. Thank you, everyone. Gosh, I'm really overwhelmed by the sort of the amount of people that are here. I've never done something this sort of big, really. So thank you so much to the Ibn Arabi Society for this opportunity um, and just for having been so supportive and generous. So as Dom indicated, most of my talk is uh, today will be based on this essay that I wrote where I explored Ibn Arabi's cosmology and his understanding of the saint or the wali in dialogue with the Mahayana Buddhist notion of the self, or rather the not-self, and the bodhisattva, or the enlightenment being, as they are known in that tradition, who realizes and enacts spiritual truth in his or her very person. So that will be the substance of the talk. And I'm sorry if it feels a bit back and forth, but hopefully some sort of coherence will emerge. As I indicated in the abstract, I will end with a short reflection on an interesting and quite beautiful resonance between Arabic explication of the human response to the divine disclosures or unveilings and a particular episode of the divine human encounter in a Hindu text. So as the leitmotif of our discussion today is harmony, which for the purposes of this discussion, we might consider as a spiritual equilibrium, an ethical in-between, a middle way that is also a kind of all-embracing whole or fullness, I thought I'd set the tone, if I may, with a short reflection by the Indian philosopher-poet Rabindranath Tagore, one of the poets I'm currently working on, but I think many of you will know. Not too dissimilar to the title that Ibn Arabi is often given, the Sheikh Al-Akbar, the greatest teacher or master, Tagore is frequently remembered as Gurudev, also meaning something like revered master or teacher. Thinking about the etymology of the word harmony from the Greek harmonia, which denotes a kind of fittingness, an appropriacy, or perhaps more literally a concordance. This web of terms is especially crucial to the religious thought and poetry of Tagore, for whom all so-called binaries, the finite and the infinite, the self and the other, the local and the global, are structured by deep-rooted symbioses or relations of harmony where each requires the other to be fully itself, where it is only in a grand orchestral unity that the individual instruments or notes find their true meaning. Most importantly for Tagore, God and the world are related like singer and song, the song at each moment bearing sonorous witness to its divine source, and the human being is called to lend its voice to this eternally unfolding symphony. So he says, quote, this world whose soul seems to be aching for expression in its endless rhythm of lines and colours and movements, hints and whispers, and all the suggestions of the inexpressible, finds its harmony in the ceaseless longing of the human heart to make the divine manifest. And so for Tagore, we receive God's gift of creation, not merely by possessing or having it, but, quote, by producing upon it music by offering something to God of our own creative abundance and truth, by harmoniously responding to the cosmic call of the divine. In short, the process of human, human becoming can be understood as a progressive attunement, as we learn to silence our confused noise and chatter and become one with the flowing melody of the world. I draw on these resonances of the term harmony because I think they nicely highlight what will be a central theme of this discussion, 
namely that the ideas of fana or annihilation in Sufism and sunyata or emptiness in Mahayana Buddhism move away from this conception of knowledge as something definitively obtained or grasped upon completing the spiritual quest. Rather, in both traditions, knowing represents a mode of spiritual wisdom or a, or a dynamic transparency to the way the world is. Adopting the words of Tabor, we might say that the realized in both his worldviews does not possess or cognitively contain truth, but silently sings, witnesses to, even becomes it. So in part one of this talk, we'll discuss the notions of sunyata and fana. And in part two, we'll consider how these modalities are actualized in the life of the individual. We will explore how in Mahayana Buddhism and Sufism, the descent into a nothingness signaled by the terms fana and sunyata paradoxically becomes an ascent towards an integrated wholeness, a harmony. I ground this discussion in these two worldviews, which on the surface seem radically opposed. Mahayana Buddhism, which avoids all kinds of ontological or metaphysical claims in the sense that there is no absolute or God in the way that we conventionally understand these terms. And Sufism, which of course rests on an ontological foundation. However, we will see that Mahayana Buddhism's emptiness is not to be understood as a blank absence or, or negation. And the divine reality of Sufi thought is not to be understood as a bare presence, something straightforwardly out there, which can be contained by human speech. And this idea that we cannot domesticate or contain the absolute, the divine, will be the key theme of our final exploration of the divine disclosures in part three. So turning first to the Mahayana Buddhist notion of shunyata or emptiness, um, just a bit of historical background. Mahayana, a Sanskrit term meaning great vehicle, refers to the second dominant tradition within Buddhism, the historically first being Theravada or the way of the elders. The Mahayana movement arose around the beginning of the common era and over time produced several schools of its own. The Mahayana tradition extended earlier, earlier teachings of Pali Buddhism with a more elaborate focus on compassion and the holy individuals called the bodhisattvas in whom this compassion is realized. So the doctrine of emptiness or shunyata came to prominence with what is called the Prajna Paramita or the perfection of wisdom literature, a collection of manuals and their commentaries that represent some of the earliest texts of Mahayana Buddhism. Of this collection, two texts called the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra are the most well-known and they express the notion of shunyata and its relation to the bodhisattva. Regarding the um, conceptual background of shunyata, in the historical Buddha's day, the quest for spiritual liberation was understood as the quest for liberating a person's true self, known in certain Hindu worldviews as the Atman, the eternal metaphysical reality underpinning both the individual human self and the external world. The early Buddhist doctrine of anatman or no self, not self, rejected these positions, arguing that to attribute an enduring metaphysical being to the self in the form of this atman is to misrepresent the nature of the world, which is in truth a radical flux of becoming. In reality, for these early Buddhist traditions, when we analyze 
the supposedly unitary I, we find that this is simply a transient collection of five mental and physical factors, the body or material form, feelings, perceptions, volitions, and lastly, cognitions. All of these fade just as soon as they arise, and all of them are inseparably connected to each other. According to the crucial Buddhist doctrine of dependent origination, every momentary bundle or aggregate of such factors produces a subsequent bundle. Everything exists and perishes in relation to the existing and perishing of other things. Because these impermanent bundles rapidly succeed one another, we mistakenly characterize them as one enduring and stable self. So the early schools of Buddhism subsequently elaborated this scheme of the bundles or the, these collections or the various bits that we wrongly coalesce into a single eye into lists of what are called dharmas, meaning foundational elements of reality. These dharmas, although constantly changing and immediately ceasing to exist after coming to be, were understood to be ultimately real because they possessed what is known in these early traditions as svabhava or self-existence. Each dharma was understood as possessing its own specific nature. For instance, the particular characteristic of fire is heat. It is precisely this idea that the dharmas represent the, the kind of basic stuff of reality, and that they have their own intrinsic natures, that Nagarjuna, the second century Indian monk, criticizes through his conception of shunyata. Nagarjuna's key treatise on shunyata is called the Mulla Madhyamaka Karika, root verses on the middle way, uh, the word for middle way here being Madhyamaka, which became the name of the particular Buddhist school centered on um, his teachings. So Nagarjuna understood the Buddhist teaching of dependent origination, little flux of becoming, to mean this interdependence of everything, which, in other words, meant their emptiness, their shunyata of inherent existence. The early traditions, as we saw, asserted that the dharmas or the elements that make up reality are indeed dependent on each other. But this for Nagarjuna did not go far enough. The very exercise of isolating and enumerating separate dharmas, each with their own supposed self-existence, is to assert ontological being where there is only, in truth, emptiness. So Nagarjuna elaborates on this principle by drawing out various pairs that exist only as they are mutually conditioned by each other in this uh, dynamic equilibrium. For example, the notions of cause and effect have no meaning independently of their interrelation. Not only does the effect depend on the cause for its existence, but the cause itself can be understood as a cause only in relation to its corresponding effect. So the existence of the child depends upon the parents, but the identity of the parents, qua parents, is also dependent upon the child. Arya Deva, a disciple of Nagarjuna, um, expounds or develops this theme of emptiness by deconstructing the very idea of a self-subsistent entity. In one treatise, Arya Deva cites the example of someone mistaking a rope for a snake and states, when its specific properties are perceived with certainty, i.e. when we realize it's only a rope, that cognition that it was a snake 
becomes an erroneous one without a real corresponding object. When this false belief passes away, we arrive at a new supposed certainty that the rope is indeed a rope and not a snake. Yet, once this rope too is subjected to the same deconstructive analysis, we discover the parts or the threads that form the rope and the filaments that in turn form the threads and so on ad infinitum. Thus, Aryadeva says, the knowledge of the rope as a rope is ultimately as false as the knowledge of the rope as a serpent. And the knowledge of the parts of the rope is ultimately as false as the knowledge of the rope. Crucially, the intention here is not to deny our empirical observation of things in the world, where we do indeed see things as particular entities. The discussion here relates to the question of what really exists, i.e. ontology. And for the Madhyamaka tradition, it's precisely because things are empty, i.e. without self-existence, that they exist at all. In other words, it's precisely because the tree has no self-contained or immutable essence, that it is not sufficient unto itself, that it is a tree at all, for it is only what it is in its interactions with the soil and the sun that nourish it. Thus, Nagarjuna affirms, for whom emptiness exists, all things are possible. For whom emptiness does not exist, nothing is possible. If things indeed possessed a swabhava, a self-existence, they would not be the everyday entities that we recognize and know, which exist only in harmonious relationality with other things. Therefore, it is somewhat paradoxically the emptiness of things which secures rather than denies their empirical realities. We might note here that to discuss things as empty is almost to push language to its limit is not to speak of emptiness already to set up a distinct thing, namely emptiness, which we then ascribe to the world. In other words, in attempting to linguistically express the teaching of Shunyata, even if it be only to affirm that all things are empty, one could commit the fallacy of setting up this circumscribed thing or object, another rope-like substance that we might then seek to grasp or cling to. David Harvey notes, therefore, that all discussion of emptiness in this tradition is to be, quote, finally given up, as the things which are said to be empty do not ultimately exist, i.e. they do not have self-existence. One cannot say that they are empty. So this, um, the, the Madhyamaka notion that the highest truth cannot be conveyed in and through words finds resonance across many spiritual and theological traditions. Um, and is of central importance also in the Sufi path of cultivating proximity to God. The designation of the ultimate reality as ineffable, however, carries different imp implications across these traditions. On the one hand, for Nagarjuna, the fact that shunyata cannot be fully communicated linguistically or conceptually has to do with the danger of what's called reification, i.e. of converting words into ultimate categories of reality. An example of this reification might be if we, were, if we were to consider the English phrase, it is raining. The it in this sentence has no referent. There is no substantive thing that is raining. All we mean to say here is there is rain. The it, in other words, functions simply as a placeholder or grammatical subject, but has no autonomous reality of its own. 
On the other hand, while in Ibn Arabi's religious worldview, there is an ontological ground of being, namely God, who is permanent and immutable, and is therefore, to use the language of Nagarjuna, characterized by Swabhava, the affirmation of ineffability highlights this, the inexhaustible perfection of the divine, whose ever-changing theophanies elude the grasp of language. Turning now then to our Sufi iteration of nothingness or negation, the goal of the Sufi journey has commonly been formulated as the annihilation fana, of one's ego self, which is concurrent with the survival or subsistence baka, in God. As a lived embodiment of these two possibilities, the narrative of the Prophet Muhammad's night journey to heaven came to be understood as the model of the spiritual path. Just as Muhammad's ascension culminates in his direct encounter with the divine, Sufi's own mythical path becomes an active, progressive realization, the hakuk, of the divine unity in and through the multiplicity of manifest forms. Against this backdrop, let us move briefly into Ibn Arabi's cosmology. On the subject of existence, wujud, Ibn Arabi differentiates between the ineffable absolute or real, al-haq, which is the essence beyond predication, and the divine disclosure through the divine names or attributes, designating the diverse modalities of God's relation to creation. These names are said to yearn for concrete existence so that they might display their particular qualities. And in Ibn Arabi's account of creation, God gazes upon the names in their distress and exhales into them the breath of the all-merciful, Nafas al-Rahman. The names exhibit their own individual properties and the universe thus exists only through God's unqualified wujud. In this grand cosmic interplay between unity and multiplicity, the divine words display their own distinctive qualities, but in respect of the single breath that animates and supports them, they are identical. Thus, in referring to the cosmos as the shadow of God, Ibn Arabi notes, the shadow is nothing other than he. All we perceive is nothing other than the being of the reality in the essences of contingent beings. With reference to the identity of the reality, it is its being, whereas with reference to the variety of its forms, it is the essences of contingent beings. The cosmos is thus simultaneously he and not he. Insofar as it is differentiated in multiplicity, it has a contingent reality which is other than God. And yet, inasmuch as its existence derives from God at each moment, its reality is ultimately none other than his. As Ibn Arabi affirms, were creation to be disengaged from the real, it would not be. And were it identical to the real, it would not be creation. In this account of the cosmos as the created culmination of God's yearning to become known, Ibn Arabi speaks of the cosmos as a mirror which projects the divine reality into a hierarchy of worldly excellences, determined by the degree to which things differentially reflect the names of God. What underpins the mystic potential for annihilation in God is that the human being resides at the top of this cosmic hierarchy and is capable of manifesting in a microcosm every divine name. The creation of the cosmos is motivated by God's impulse to manifest the divine nature 
And to this end, God begins by creating a universe wherein every existence emphasizes one attribute or name of God. The original universe taken as a whole was once but an aggregate of discrete properties. And it is not until God also creates Adam that these properties become intensively concentrated in a single reality. The human being is therefore understood as the most perfect self-manifestation of the divine, who encompasses the divine names not only comprehensively, but also consciously. Ibn Arabi therefore refers to the human being as the spirit of the cosmos. The body of the cosmos is lifeless until the human being is breathed into it. This conception of the human being as the refraction of the divine names takes shape in Ibn Arabi's elaboration of the perfect human, Al-Insan Al-Qamil. Although the potential to manifest this fullness of the divine names, both quantitatively and qualitatively, lies latent in all human individuals, it is only through the insight that the self-disclosure of God is fully actualized. It is here that the modality of fana becomes significant, and Ibn Arabi uses the image of the polished mirror to illustrate the moment of mystical union where the densities of the ego self, the nafs, are annihilated from the perfected human heart. Sufi interpretations of such annihilation of the nafs frequently cite the hadith My servant continues to draw near to me with supererogatory works so that I shall love him. And when I love my servant, I'm the hearing with which he hears, the seeing with which he sees, the hand with which he grasps, and so on. The divine attributes are not static predicates to be rationally apprehended, for their manifestation involve a moment of union that cannot be contained or finally grasped, but must be continuously, dynamically reenacted. Ibn Arabi highlights the paradox that, quote, none subsists in the path except him who is annihilated, and none, who, none is annihilated except him who subsists. You cannot say I was annihilated from such and such without conceiving of what you were annihilated from. Thus, annihilation means annihilation from a particular, quote, mode of lower consciousness and simultaneous subsistence for a specific mode of higher consciousness. Notably, Ibn Arabi highlights the ineffability of this highest mode of knowledge. But there is amongst us one who knows and does not utter. His knowledge does not imply an incapacity to know, it implies the inexpressible. It is such a person who realizes the most complete knowledge of God. We are brought back then on a metaphysical horizon quite distinct from Mahayana Buddhism to the notion that ultimate knowledge is to be enacted rather than definitively contained. Turning now to um, part two of the talk, where we'll think about how these modalities of fana and shunyata are concretely embodied in the saint and the bodhisattva. Before getting to the bodhisattva, I wanted briefly to discuss a rather beautiful image, which might help us visualize, if that's at all possible, the nature of this emptiness uh, as the principle, the enabler of these vast networks of interrelation that we discussed earlier. One tradition of Mahayana Buddhism, called the Flower Garland or Huayen School, 
based its understanding of shunyata or emptiness on an image contained in a text called the Avakamsaka Sutra or the Flower Garland Sutra. In this Sanskrit text, it is said that in the abode of the god Indra, a vast net of jewels extends infinitely in all directions. And in each eye of this cosmic net is situated a jewel which reflects every other jewel in the net. Applying this image to the entire universe, the Huayen school elaborates the idea that everything encapsulates and is simultaneously encapsulated by everything else. The final portion of this text hints towards this vision, stating that for the realized person, quote, in one particle of dust is seen the entire ocean of worlds, recalling, of course, the poet William Blake's famous invitation to see the world in a grain of sand, an eternity in an hour. Developing this sense of cosmic wonder, Francis Cook, the foremost elaborator of this school of Buddhism, asks, in this spiritual imagination, where everything interpenetrates an identity and interdependence, where everything needs everything else, what is there which is not valuable? It is the Bodhisattva, the enlightenment being, who realizes this pulsating truth of the universe and who intertwines wisdom and compassion, Mahakaruna, in a perfectly synthesized unity. This supreme compassion enables the Bodhisattva to live in the empirical world, though without the erroneous ontology that creates negative desires and attachments. The Bodhisattva's role as a compassionate guide begins with the cosmic vow to help all beings, note not simply humans, to freedom in all the states of woe that may be found in any world system whatsoever. Strictly speaking, however, as the Diamond Sutra points out, the Bodhisattva must reflect that although innumerable beings may be led to nirvana, no being at all is ever led to nirvana. Uh, nirvana often understood in Mahayana traditions, not as a separate realm or place that one finally arrives at, but as the spiritual state of the realized person. Because of their emptiness, individual beings cannot be said to truly exist, the recipients of the Bodhisattva's benevolence. And it is precisely this aspect of shunyata that impels the Bodhisattva to free all beings from suffering. The Bodhisattva, in other words, sees suffering as suffering, for there are no substantial entities to whom this suffering can be ascribed. This makes the Bodhisattva's compassion truly boundless in scope, in contrast to the compassion of the unenlightened, which often stretch, stretches only to those others closely related to the self. As the 8th century Buddhist philosopher Shantideva insisted, when fear and suffering are disliked by me and others equally, what is so special about me that I protect myself and not the other, i.e. all others? Although the ultimate truth of Shunyata lies beyond verbalization, the Bodhisattva employs language skillfully and without aspect of this use of language is what is known as the practice of upaya or skillful means through which the bodhisattva recalibrates, repackages the teaching of shunyata according to the individual needs 
and understandings of different audiences. Just as a doctor prescribes different medicines in relation to the individual diseases of patients. Thus, it is said of the bodhisattvas, they explain emptiness for the sake of those who are attached to being, and they explain existence for the sake of those who are attached to emptiness. The fact that being is taught to some and emptiness is taught to others not only demonstrates a characteristic middle way position of Madhyamaka philosophy, but also shows that shunyata is not therefore a static or fixed philosophical doctrine to be indifferently imparted without attention to the spiritual state of the listener or student, a real emphasis, in other words, on particularity and individuality. In short, the nothingness of shunyata is to be properly understood as a radical transparency to the world, reflected in the bodhisattva's compassionate attunement to the suffering and needs of others. This notion of a harmonious integration of vision and virtue is reflected also in Ibn Arabi's understanding of fana, which is complemented by his notion of baka. In referring to the ascension narrative highlighted earlier, Ibn Arabi prefers to employ the expression nocturnal journey or isra, both because it is a granic term and because it more accurately conveys the completeness of the voyage. Just as Muhammad's night journey involved both an ascent to God and a downward movement or return to creation, Ibn Arabi insists upon the importance of, quote, the concluding phase of the saint's return to a transformed awareness of the physical and social world in its immediate relation with God and to the particular responsibilities and activities, whether teaching and spiritual guidance or the other tasks flowing from that realization. According to the traditional account of the Ascension, when Muhammad is asked by God whether he wishes to stay with God, Muhammad simply responds, Ummati, Ummati, my community, my community. We might see Muhammad's decision to return as in some sense analogous to the vow of the Bodhisattva, who resolves to liberate every being from the suffering of desire and grasping. The saints, too, partaking in Muhammad's own downward movement to creation, channel the divine Rahmah to the world. And we see instances of this shining sainthood in the, in the wonderful Sufis of Andalusia. In the extinctive mode of Fana, the mystic becomes the integrated locus of manifestation for the divine attributes. As the divine names are thus being realized, the ego self passes away which represents both the divine contemplation of himself in the polished human heart and also the human seeing of itself in its true nature as a microcosm of the divine names. Thus, the baqa in God remains incomplete if the saint does not return to creation, for it is in this world-directed descent that the fullness of the divine attributes is fully and concretely manifested. Ibn Arabi elaborates on this theme by asserting that, quote, if the witness, the shahid, is not found after the annihilation, then it was not truly an annihilation in Tawheed, oneness. In virtue of this experience of fana, the saints know that whatever divine qualities or attributes they display cannot, cannot be appropriated or domesticated by their individual um, subjectivity or identity, 
but must rather be received as the forms of the revealed God. The saint qua individual possesses nothing lordly and is only the place or locus of manifestation for the divine. We encounter here then a paradox of this spiritual realization of Fana, namely that what does not truly exist cannot logically be said to disappear. What is negated in the moment of Fana is paradoxically that which had no autonomous reality in the first place, namely the supposedly distinct individual self. The goal of the circular journey of Fana and Baka is therefore the active realization that, quote, our existence from the beginning belonged to God, that we had no existence to start with, which could cease to be. Crucially, the lens through which the saints see their true self through the fana of the ego and the self-disclosure of the absolute also allows them to see the entire cosmos as the ongoing series of the divine self-disclosures and thus taste the ontological freshness of each instant. For Ibn Arabi, the cosmos emerges and ever new forms at each moment. Each of these forms comes to be and passes away in momentary succession. The process through which the world is enlivened from moment to moment is itself a continual interplay of fana and baka on the cosmic level, where the fana of one form gives way to the instantaneous baka of another. Just as for the flower garland school of Buddhism, the world as a cosmically interdependent network of jewels means that nothing is ever dispensable or inessential. For Ibn Arabi, the world in its pulsating entirety thus becomes an object of wonder. As Reza Shah Kazemi puts it, what the infinite or the hidden treasure loved to be known must be infinitely lovable. Ibn Arabi's vision of the abundant, perpetually transformative nature of the cosmos ultimately centers on the very heart of the saint. Drawing out the etymological connection between qalb, heart, and taqallub, perpetual transformation, Ibn Arabi affirms that the polished heart is the very locus of the constantly changing self-manifestations of God. Thus, Ibn Arabi cites the Hadith Qudsi, neither my earth nor my sky are wide enough to contain me, but the heart of my servant, believing, pious, and pure, is wide enough to contain me. This containing of the absolute does not, of course, denote a final circumscription of the divine by the human self. For as we've seen, the infinite self-manifestations of the absolute appearing anew with each breath cannot be grasped in this way. Indeed, Ibn Arabi urges the spiritual aspirant who, who perceives the inward forms of creation not to stop at any particular revelation. Quote, if you stay with what is offered, he will escape you. The fullness of the divine self-manifestation in the, in the individual is realized, therefore, to the extent that the individual fulfills their comprehensive function, which is possible only in as much as one does not grasp onto any of the particular modes in which the absolute reveals itself. The saint occupies what Ibn Arabi calls the station of no station, when the manifestations of the divine appear but are never finally held onto precisely because the saints are not bound to any particular conception of the absolute 
all of the divine names shimmer through them in a balanced and harmonious equilibrium. So I want to um, end now with this theme of the divine disclosures and equilibrium across Ibn Arabi and a particular Hindu narrative. And in relation to Ibn Arabi, considering more specifically the divine names of J Jalal and Jamal. And here I draw on the wonderful Pablo Benito's article on the divine love of beauty. Ibn Arabi defines Jamal or the divine beauty as quote, the extrinsic attributes of the compassion or Rahma and the grace that arise from the divine presence. And he defines Jalal or the divine majesty uh, here the disclosed majesty and not the majesty of the tr transcendent essence as quote, the extrinsic attributes of the irresistible power which arise from the divine presence. In a somewhat counterintuitive move, Ibn Arabi says that when God discloses himself under the aspect of his majesty, the mysterium tremendum, the fitting response is not, as many Sufi authors thought before him, to recoil in fear or constriction. And conversely, when God reveals himself, his beauty, the appropriate response is not a kind of exuberance or expansion. In fact, Ibn Arabi tells us, it is necessary to face the majesty that comes from him, that from which we might naturally turn away in awe or in fear, with an attitude of intimacy, thanks to which we can maintain a state of balance throughout the contemplation, so that we may be able to understand what we see without being amazed or disconcerted. Just as this disclosure of majesty requires on our part a corresponding closeness so that we don't miss what is being revealed to us, the disclosure of beauty that we might naturally exalt or delight in requires from us a measured modesty, lest we think that we have somehow contained or circumscri circumscribed the divine. So Ibn Arabi asserts, when the theophany of beauty is revealed to us in the state of contemplation, we should then receive his expansion with reverent fear, since expansion received with expansion leads to a lack of courtesy and inappropriate behavior in the divine presence is the cause of distancing and isolation. The balance or equilibrium is preserved only where the expansion of the divine is met by our own reverential submission. The divine disclosures demand from us a certain appropriate or fitting response. And so it is that in the Hindu text, the Bhagavata Purana, which elaborates the Hindu deity, which celebrates the Hindu deity Krishna as the supreme Lord, we are similarly cautioned against a kind of improper expansion in response to the divine intimacy. Roughly, the story I'm alluding to, shown here on the screen, unfolds as follows. One splendid autumn evening, when the radiant full moon has appeared in the sky, Krishna begins to play on his flute. At these irresistibly enchanting melodies, the local cowherd women leave behind their domestic chores and run to be with him. It is then that the celebrated Rasa Leela, or the dance of divine love that you see depicted here, takes place as Krishna multiplies himself so that each woman thinks that Krishna is dancing with her alone. They thus become filled with the conceit that they have contained Krishna, that the Supreme Lord of the world is somehow exclusively theirs. And at this, Krishna disappears. 
and the women are plunged into sorrow. Just as for Ibn Arabi, the divine unveilings are intimately real for us, but never finally belong to us. Here too, Krishna's lovers had to learn through the departure of their beloved Lord that Krishna was indeed fully theirs, but not theirs alone. In the interest of returning to our point of origin, I will end with a poem by Tagore in which he reworks the scriptural motif, addressing the divine who reveals himself ever new, ever elusively in our finite vessels. You have made me endless, such is thy sport. Emptying me, you have again filled me with new life. On so many hills and on so many river shores, you have roamed carrying this little flute, playing again and again so many notes. Whom can I ever tell? At your immortal touch, my little heart loses its limits in supreme joy and breaks out in song. Filling only my little fist, you give to me day and night. Countless ages pass and you are not finished. I only continue to seek. Thank you.